Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Every Wednesday, we discuss all things dogs, from health and veterinary care to training and behavior science. Follow us and join Good Dog's mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them. Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Michael Delgado here with you at the Good Dog Pod. I'm very excited about today's guest. We're going to talk with Dr. Mallory Deschamps about some of her research looking at dog olfaction and just give you a little her background. Dr. Mallory Deschamps received her PhD from Texas Tech University, where she studied canine olfaction under the guidance of Dr. Nathaniel Hall, and she's still studying canine olfaction there. She's a postdoctoral research associate at Texas Tech. She got her bachelor's degree in animal science and biology. She got a master's degree in animal science with an emphasis in canine physiology. So she has been studying dogs for some time now. Her research at Texas Tech focuses on a few things, including how dogs respond to different concentrations of odor, which we're going to talk about today, and also the effects of the handler on detection dog performance. So I'm really excited to learn more about Dr. Deshant's research. Dr. Deshant, please join us. Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, I like to learn a little bit about the scientists behind the work. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background before you started your academic career. Were you just a dog lover or had you worked with detection dogs or done nose work before you decided to study this? So I actually had very little experience with dogs before I started school, just pet dog, personal dog, things like that, but no official, you know, nose work or detection, anything associated with that. And actually, when I started college, I wanted to do research in horses. I was really interested in equine exercise physiology all throughout my college years. And then I realized I loved research and I wanted to go the grad school route. And I started looking at universities and talking with professors. And I did want to do the equine route, but I had a professor who said, hey, you know, we have an opening in dogs and in search and rescue dogs and canine physiology. So that's really when I started working with. But yeah, prior to that, zero experience with detection dogs and those work. Okay, cool. So you wasn't like your whole life. You're like, I'm going to work with dogs when I grow up or anything. So it really kind of landed in your lap. But it sounds like you didn't mind. (laughs) No, I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what could be better? So let's talk about, I mean, your research is really focused on olfaction or the dog's sense of smell. And first of all, let's just talk about how good is a dog's sense of smell, like maybe relative to other animals or, you know, us as other animals, like, can we even really perceive what a dog's olfactory experience is like? Yeah. So the olfaction system is actually extremely complicated. It's not just, you know, breathe in and you're able to identify that odor and, you know, perceive it. It's very complex how the system works. And really it depends on what odorant you're talking about. So what you're actually smelling, dogs will have a different limit of detection. So their threshold, if you will. I mean, it's just like people, you know, we have certain limits of detection as well. And we talk about the dog usually they're just more sensitive and they have a lower limit of detection for certain odorants compared to people. Mm -hmm. There are some chemicals or odorants that people can actually smell better than dogs. So vinegar would be one of them. We actually have a lower threshold or limit of detection for vinegars. You know, we don't really need dogs out there to detect vinegar. (laughs) We have a better limit of detection. So it really just depends on what odorant you're talking about and the threshold for that is going to be a huge range based on, you know, the species and the training experience that animal has had with that. 
specific odorant. So we don't need to worry too much about our dogs being bothered by our salads. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I had no idea. Why vinegar? Yeah. Okay. So when I was reviewing your research and learning more about your work, it talks a lot, you know, you work a lot with this concept of stimulus discrimination and generalization. I think those are kind of topics people don't talk about every day. I mean, I think they make sense when you start thinking about them, but can you describe stimulus discrimination and generalization and what that means in the context of dogs' ability to detect odors? Yeah. So when you talk about training a dog to a specific odor to detect, and we do stimulus discrimination, it's basically, can we train the dog to identify one odor, so your target odor, and be able to pick it out in all of these other odors in this environment? So can you find this one odor that I trained you to, or multiple odors, and be able to identify it and ignore all of the other ones? So you can do that a variety of different ways when you're training the dog. But the way we do it, you know, we have a typical three choice option, if you will. One will have the target and then the other two will have distractor odors or odors you can proof your dog off of that are maybe found in that environment wherever that dog is working commonly. So, you know, cotton balls, if it's a narcotic dog or even explosive dog, whatever the dog is, you want to take odors that are in the environment routinely and make sure that dog is not hitting that specific odor or substance. So basically, can you identify after all of these different odorants, the one I trained you to? Gotcha. Yeah. So that's going to be odor stimulus discrimination, basically. And when we talk about generalization, kind of a couple of different contexts. So what can the dog spontaneously generalize to? That was one of the studies that I did. So when I train them to a certain chemical, that's a certain concentration and specific odorant, what can they spontaneously generalize to? Meaning, what can they alert on based on what you originally trained them to? So a different concentration, perhaps, maybe a different mm-hmm. manufacturer, producer of that specific compound mm-hmm. or chemical. What is close in similarity to what you train them to that they can naturally say, oh, this is the same thing because it's perceived as the same thing. Where we do a lot of different generalization testing is a couple of the ones I've done are on concentration. So if I dilute it more, can the dog still generalize? Can they still say, oh, this is the same target? Or when do they start to say, oh, this is perceived different because it's so diluted or so concentrated? Okay. And is it that they perceive it differently, you think, or that they just can't smell it anymore if you dilute it enough, or it doesn't even matter? So it depends if you dilute it a great amount, surely, you know, their limit of detection, that's what we can train. So at some point it could be so small where it's not being picked up because their limit of detection or threshold is so small. But when we talk about generalization and you change the concentration specifically, that can be perceived as different if you go, you know, a certain fold on diluting that original one that you train the dog on. So that's why it's so important to train them because, you know, they may spontaneously generalize to tenfold, you know, if you're diluting it, but if you don't explicitly train them, they're not going to hit on anything beyond that. Okay, cool. And when I was reading about the ways you actually test the odor itself, right? So you're creating these odors, then you're training the dogs on them. How do you know, like how much odor is in the sample. It sounds like there's maybe some fancy equipment involved. It just seems very complicated. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how that works. Yeah. So we tested a couple of different ways. Um, I think maybe the first project that I did with Texas Tech was using liquid dilution. So I had isoamyl acetate, which is just synthetic banana. 
and I diluted it a little bit because it's so strong. Wait, did you say banana? Yeah, it's actually the in runts. It's the runt flavoring in the banana one. (laughs) Yeah, so it's that same chemical. So it's obviously safe to handle and, you know, it's food. So the dogs, they don't mind it most of the time. So we use that, you know, for liquid dilution and we diluted it with mineral oil. And you can dilute, you know, we did a half log step, but you can dilute it in various ways. But it's literally just pipetting that liquid solution, putting in a jar and then mixing it with mineral oil. So it's mixed well, and it's not going to separate and you have these two different products. The other way we is we basically dilute it with air. So we have two different devices, if you will, an air dilution olfactometer, which is taking pure zero compressed gas air. So there's no odor. So it's zero air. So it's odorless air and you can dilute, you know, that solid with this air And then depending on what study you're doing, you can control how far you dilute it. Okay, cool. The runs thing is fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's always a fun one. (laughs) Is that a chemical that dogs need to detect in other contexts or is it really just like proof of concept? No, it's just proof of concept and it's safe and easy to handle. (laughs) Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So you've got your odor concentration. You've got some that are maybe smell a lot like the runts, maybe some (laughs) that are very diluted. So how do you actually test the dogs and how do they tell you that, yes, I detect this banana smell or whatever it is, or they say, no, I do not. Yeah. So the way we train them, and it depends kind of on our setup, but behaviorally we train them to do whatever is natural. So we had um, one study, I had like a manual lineup. So it's just on the ground, you know, just this wooden board with PVC tubing on it. I mean, basically the dog just comes and it smells and they have this natural hold or stare on, you know, that PVC pipe. Hmm. So that we basically just clicker train them to do the stare, do this hold of it's in this spot. And then we just increase the duration on that. So it's very clear when you have a video and the dog goes through and, you know, they're sitting there staring at this specific PVC for, you know, four seconds or whatever. And we do the same thing with the olfactometers that have the nose ports. We just train them to hold their nose in the port for four seconds. Um, And then you can just build this duration over time slowly. We did a study one time where we had a lever and the dogs could press the lever Mm. to indicate that the odor was there. Okay. Um, But we had trained some of the dogs previously on the stair and that was just easier for some of them. So that study, we only had four dogs and only one preferred to do the lever, but it was super cute to watch them you know, press the lever to say, oh, it's here. It's a very clear message, right? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So that's just clicker training. Oh, cool. Yeah. And does this take days, weeks, months? Depends on the study and the dog. Obviously, if they're food motivated, it's a bit easier than if they're not as food motivated. And so depending on the odor as well and kind of the setup, but that typical lineup that I talked to you about, that's the PVC on the wood board. That's fairly quick because they don't have to put their face or their nose in any device. The one with the odor ports is a, you know, one more step, two more steps, because they have to physically put their nose in Mm -hmm. to trigger the beams that are recording a nose hold. But we, you know, depending on the dog, a couple days, maybe if it's a bit more difficult or the task is harder, you know, a, a couple weeks or whatnot. But we just start with food. You know, you put the food in the PVC or in the odor port. So they figure Mm -hmm. out, oh, like I need to look for the food. And then you just move the food and replace it with that odor and basically teach them, this is what I want you to find instead of the food. But you have to train that initial step of, hey, let's learn how to do this search game. 
Right. And we can do that with food pretty easily. Cool. Okay. So detection dogs, when they're trained, are trained for a specific odor. And a lot of your research has looked at what happens when you dilute that odor, right? So you're making it harder, I guess, in theory, harder to detect or maybe easier, but you're seeing if they respond differently when you change those dilutions. And you did say that there might be times where a low concentration of something you wouldn't want the dog to alert you. Is that because it's just those are things that are going to be naturally in the environment? So you don't want false alarms or how do you decide what's like a danger zone, I guess? Well, so that depends on the job of the dog. So the first study, I guess, take a step back is I looked at what happens if you don't train dogs to lower concentrations, you know, what is their threshold of that specific odor? And then I took the other group and I trained them to lower and lower And then I found that if you explicitly train dogs to lower concentration, their threshold will improve a hundredfold compared to dogs where you just give them the same concentration of odorant and you train them over and over and over at the same concentration. You can see that their threshold isn't as lower versus when you explicitly train the dog to lower amounts. So that's really important because if you need your dog to smell, you know, a smaller, more diluted odor, you need to explicitly train them. And we suspect a similar phenomenon for high, so something that's very concentrated compared to what you're training to. Of course, Mm -hmm. that's something we would need to test, which is for the future. But the other one that you were talking about with the specific range, so we first tested what do they spontaneously generalize to. And Mm -hmm. so you train them on a certain concentration, and they have a spontaneous generalization about tenfold to that specific odorant that we use, so that synthetic banana, the isoamyl acetate. They have a spontaneously generalized tenfold to what you originally trained them to. And then we train them, okay, I want you to detect this range and not respond anything higher or lower. And this for oil leak detection dogs is kind of what we did this test for to see, can we do this? Mm -hmm. We obviously want them to be able to tell us if there's a target odor. So this oil within this certain range, but you could use that for, you know, a variety of different I guess, jobs of these detection dogs. So I was talking to some person who does currency training. And so, you know, you can legally through the airport or three different countries or whatever, take a certain amount of money, but anything beyond that, you know, you're not allowed to take. So that would be something that could be applicable for this certain concentration. You know, I want you to detect X amount in this range, but nothing lower, nothing greater. Gotcha. But I guess for the currency, you know, you want something greater, just not lower. Right, right. I mean, I guess there's certain other things too. Like if they're an explosives dog, you don't want them to not detect a huge amount of explosives because you train them to only detect a medium amount. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So it really gets back to that generalization and discrimination. Even if it's the same odor now, they're just generalizing or discriminating based on amount. Right. So it's assumed to be perceived differently if it's a different concentration. So we need to explicitly train. Cool. All right. You are listening to The Good Dog Pod. We're here with Dr. Mallory Deshant talking about olfaction and dogs. We will be right back. Good Dog provides breeders in our community with free and exclusive access to puppy contract templates and legal resources created by our team of lawyers, specifically for dog breeders. Follow the link in the show notes to access these sample contracts, legal webinars, our breeder recommended list of lawyers, and more. And we are back at the Good Dog Pod. We have a special guest today, Dr. Mallory Deshant, talking about her research at Texas Tech, looking at canine olfaction and detection work. 
So usually, at least from what I've observed, detection dogs are specific breeds that have been, you know, maybe they're known for their excellent sense of smell, but you use mixed breed and shelter dogs in your research, which I think is really cool. Do you think that influenced your results at all? Have you like compared with other like purebred dogs? Or do you think that mixed breed dogs are probably just as good of a candidate for detection work? Are there any limitations there? Tell us about that. Yeah. So we take dogs from local shelters and we basically foss them for a few months and do research projects with them, behavioral projects, things like that. And, you know, we have had great success with it. I think there's only been a couple of dogs that just don't want to do it. And that's basically because they're not food motivated or toy motivated. And so it's hard to get them to, you know, to train them. But we have also done studies with purebred dogs. We haven't specifically done something looking at mixed breeds and compared it to purebred dogs. The biggest thing that you see, you know, a lot of like your law enforcement or military dogs are going to be shepherd-like dogs. And that's just based on the physical aspect of their job. We have mixed breed dogs and we can certainly train them to do a variety of detection tasks. You know, you could also take a pug and do the same thing. It's just a different kind of task, you know, and it's a smaller dog. So maybe they get full faster. So you can't do as many trials. But I wouldn't discount the pug from an olfactory sense compared to, you know, a shepherd. But the thing is, if you have a police dog who's also like an apprehension dog, imagine that to be a pug. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think the person who's running from the pug is going to have to run too fast or, you know, be too worried about, you know, ankle biting or things like that. So I think you see a lot of Labradors or shepherds of these larger sized dogs because of the physical aspect of the job. Think of your search and rescue dogs. You're not going to see a pug doing that, not because it can't detect that person or that human odor, but because the physical aspect, you know, imagine it trying to jump over rubble or climb up, you know, ladder, things like that. I'm having a lot of really funny images in my head right now. So, (laughs) right. Yeah. But no, we do a lot of studies and think about like the nose work community, you know, it's all breeds of dogs. And so that's really great. You know, you just seen a dog that wants to work and wants to be trained, likes food or likes toy. And you're good to go. That's basically all you need. That's great. Yeah, we recently talked to Fred Helfers and he was talking about how really any dog can enjoy nose work. So I think it's really great to recognize that this is a universal trait of dogs, right? Their amazing sense of smell. And I think the points you made about kind of there's other factors involved when you're choosing dogs for certain police work or maybe a pug isn't the best choice, but. (laughs) Well, yeah, and Nathan, Dr. Hall did a a long time ago where he looked at greyhounds, pugs, and German shepherds in an olfactory performance. And the greyhounds did not want to do it, but the Mm. pugs outperformed the German shepherds. So that's that's why I always go to the pug because of that study. Yeah. (laughs) And it's a good visual when you're thinking about, you know, a pug chasing somebody versus, you know, a German shepherd. (laughs) Yeah. I think about times I've been in the airport and there's a detection dog walking around, definitely not a pug. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I want to talk a little bit about a different aspect of detection dogs. And, you know, this concept that the handler's relationship with the dog might influence the dog's behavior in some way is not new. You know, Lisa Litt did a paper in 2011 suggesting that when humans believe 
that an odor was present, that they were more likely to report that their dog detected or alerted them to that scent. So you did a study in 2020 looking at handler detection dog interactions. Can you tell us a little bit about that study and what you found? Yeah, we obviously for working dogs have the handler aspect of working with the dog. And we've speculated from, you know, the 1900s that the handler or people can unintentionally cue or bias their animal they're working with. And that goes back to the clever Hans horse, the horse that could do math, right? And so, you know, this handler, this professor was unintentionally cueing the horse to paw and it would do certain behavioral, you know, he would bend over and had a top hat on. And then when he would stand back up straight, the horse would stop pawing and the crowd would start clapping because the horse knew two plus two was four. But then suddenly when you remove these cues from this person, the horse couldn't do math. And so, you know, we see similar phenomenons in our working dog handler group. And we can cue the dog unintentionally, of course, on certain, you know, alerting change of behavior, indicating on a certain spot just by maybe changing our body behavior. And so there was a study done in 2011 that said when the handlers knew there was a target present in this location, the handler's false because there wasn't actually target there, but the dogs did indicate to this location. So the researchers said if the handler knew where the target was, that they would be cueing their dog, but there was never any target odor present is the big thing. And so we wanted to know, hey, is this actually true? Does it really matter if the handlers know you know, that there's two hides in these rooms that they have to find. Does it change the body behavior? Will the handler then cue the dog to alert if they know the number of hides in their search scenario? Okay, I'm going to pause. I want to interrupt you. Just can you explain for our audience what a hide is? Yeah, so that's literally whatever odor your dog is trained to, your target odor, you put it somewhere in the room. It's a target odor basically hidden. The dog has to go and find it. Um, So literally it's hidden. (laughs) Yes. So we had a study, we had two groups. We had the sport world and then the professional world. So law enforcement, things like that. And we split those into two more groups where I told half of them, hey, you have these three rooms to search. There's a total of two hides. Just call them out and I'll tell you if they're right or wrong. And then the other group, I just said, you have these three rooms to search. Just call out your hits and I'll tell you if you're right or wrong. So basically the huge thing was, Some knew there were two, some did not know there were two target odors hidden within these three rooms. And so, you know, there was a target odor in the first and the second room, but then the third room, it was blank. And so we had thought there'd be a difference in performance in the ones who did know there were two versus not. And there were some, mostly the differences were in the sporting dogs. And so the biggest one was the false alerts. So we thought the one that knew would have better performance, but there was no difference actually. And so there wasn't a huge number of false alerts in either group, so it was equal. And that's for sporting and professional. And so when we do, in fact, tell handlers there are two hides or however many hides, that it didn't influence their body behavior, so they weren't cueing the dog. But I think a big thing is they didn't know where it was. So the handler was blind, meaning that they didn't know, oh, you know, it's in this drawer, it's in the shelf or wherever we put it. So I think that's still important for him to work their dogs, not knowing where it is. So then they can just read their dog's behavior. And then the dog doesn't become dependent on the handler giving these behavioral body cues. 
So, yeah. Okay. I mean, you can imagine that if someone thought there were only two hides that they would stop as soon as they got to two, right? And then not encourage the dog right. to keep searching. Yeah. That could be a problem. Now, one thing that was kind of interesting is you reported on the number of times that the dogs looked at their handlers during a search task. And the number was different between the sporting dogs and the professional dogs. So what was the difference and why do you think that difference was there? Yeah. So the sporting group, those dogs actually look back at their handler more frequently than the professional group. And one big thing is the training difference between these two groups. So a lot of the times the world will have the dogs look back. So I know some trainers who like the dog to kind of check in with the handler, mm-hmm. if you will. Yep. And so we think this is one big difference is how these dogs are trained. Whereas yep. the professional groups, they don't want that. They want the dog to work kind of independently. Obviously the handler is still there, but the dog is working independent of the handler. So that's one big thing is the training difference in those two groups. And the other thing that we kind of speculated was perhaps the dog is saying, hey, this room is blank. Let's stop searching. I've already looked, Mm. you know, several times. That could be one thing. So perhaps it was just the way the dog was communicating with the handler because we looked at that in that third blank room. So perhaps, you know, that handler was repeatedly asking the dog to search and the dog had already cleared the room. (laughs) Right, right. Already searched all the boxes, the room and said, you know, there's nothing here. Like, why do you keep asking me? (laughs) Right. I guess that's, you know, if you don't explicitly give them, you train them to tell you when they do smell it, but you don't explicitly train them to tell you they don't, right? You kind of just infer one from the presence or absence of the other signal. So... Yeah. And it'd be interesting, you know, we coded the dog behavior and some different interesting to kind of go back a little bit and really see the connection between that dog and the handler and kind of see, okay, how do you train specifically? Are you running rooms where there's no target present? You know, that could be a big difference. And just seeing, you know, the behavior between that specific dog and the handler on the ones that looked back more to kind of really speculate why this is happening more in those sporting dogs. Very cool. Okay, well, what's next for you and your research? And where do you think the field of canine olfaction is going? Well, so I kind of hinted at one of them. You know, I've looked at concentration from a lower perspective, and I want to see from a higher perspective, because this is something that we see a lot in our law enforcement. So that would be interesting to see their generalization from a higher concentrated perspective. A couple other studies, we've been working on a project that I'm actually wrapping up. We've been working on it for I think two, almost three years now. And so that'll be great. I'm working on the publication part of that right now. I've been doing some work with sporting dogs, which has been really fun. I'm looking at physiology and core body temperature. I'm hoping to transition that into, you know, some scent work, which will be really fun. But yeah, just, you know, kind of continuing all of the questions people have and looking at different reinforcement rates, you know, what's the best for our our dogs when they're being constantly exposed to low target areas. So there's not a lot of targets in, you know, their Mm -hmm. search environment. How can we kind of mitigate their performance because we don't want it to decline and their vigilance and yeah, all those kinds of things. Great. Well, before we wrap up, do you have any dogs? I do. Can you tell us about them? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. uh, His name is Sunny. I actually got him my second semester here. So he is from the lab. I did do research with him. I don't do any official scent detection or nose work with him, but he did participate in one of the studies. So that's, it's pretty cool. Did he complete the study? He wasn't a dropout. No, no, he completed the study. Yeah. I use him whenever I talk about that study. So it's always his picture, his video. (laughs) Nice. Nice. All right. Well, Dr. Deschamps, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you online? 
That is a great question. I don't have a website or anything. You can always email me. I can give you my email. Will you have my email? Feel free to share that with everybody. Okay. I think kind of Facebook now has turned into a little bit of the more professional business aspect. So certainly on there, if anybody wants to connect, not a problem. Okay. Great. They can Google your name and yeah. <laughs> we'll share your email and hope you don't regret that decision. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Good luck with continuing your research. Great to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning into the Good Dog Pod. Come back next week. We'll be talking to Dr. Adam Boyko from Embark about a new study that found a gene related to deafness in Rhodesian Ridgebacks. See you there. 